Hi guys, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will, and we have Brian with us today. And guys, you got know what we do here. We help you uh, escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, talk about divisive topics that might split your church. Do not forget to like and subscribe to the Church Split, and of course, leave us a five-star review. Unless you're a hater, you can leave the one-star review, and then we'll warm up your tears in the morning. We love those too. Yep, L- love that. So, <laughs> uh, of course, we got plenty of those. Got one today. It was a good time, but. You know, guys, a lot of you already know in the church split that we have a whole playlist devoted to King James onlyism. It is by far the thing that has made us actually either popular or hated the most. Uh, I think episode one has more dislikes than anything else because, and then more ad hominem attacks in the comments than I've ever seen in my life. It's great. And I'm literally just introducing the controversy in the first in, for 10 minutes. <laughs> How dare you? And people already hate me for it. So it's great. But one of the things that helped me along my journey, and many of you guys know I was raised in the IFB. Uh, Brian, you were raised in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, graduated from Kelvin University and all that. So this is great because now our two worlds get to collide in today's episode. <laughs> um, so I we have a special guest with us today. It, it, we get Dr. James White on today to talk about King James onlyism, and for those who do not know, his book was actually very helpful for me. As the King James position was the last position I gave up before I completely jumped into theology, uh, hook, line, and sinker with a completely open mind. So, also, Dr. James White's work has helped me and Brian have a conversation with Jehovah's Witness and actually be able to successfully lead him to Christ. So, when I announced that we're having King uh, uh, Dr. White on today. I got a cacophony of different uh, a whole responses. Some yeah. people were like, oh, James White. And other people were like, yeah, James White. So it's really <laughs> funny. Uh, much like our us, he is controversial, and we appreciate that about him. So because uh, he says what he wants, thinks, and he's it is what it is, and I appreciate that. So with no further ado, Dr. James White, welcome to the church split. How are you? It's great to be with you. Doing great. Perfect. I do apologize. I am a Yankee, so I talk very fast. (laughs) It's a thing. Yeah, you do. So, but anyway, I don't want to take too much of your time today, Dr. White, but I really do appreciate you taking the time to come onto the program here. I know your work has impacted many people. I work with people all the, all the time, getting out of King James only almost cult like circles and your books are what I oftentimes recommend for people along with a plenty of others, but as especially yours on the King James only controversy, because I think it helps flesh out a lot of the issues and it gives people a great starting place to research. So can you just do us all a favor for those who are not familiar with who you are? Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, I, uh, I too was um, basically IFB, I guess, General Association of Regular Baptists would fit in that back in the uh, 60s uh, somewhere. Um, I heard lots of sermons about how wearing pantsuits would send women to hell and, uh, and stuff like that. And I do remember a number of sermons about not touching the Lord's anointed and um, oh, nice. uh, all, all the stuff about uh, uh, pastors and their authority and all that kind of stuff. So I remember, I remember the New Year's Eve things where you, what were they called? New Year's Watch or something? What was it? Uh, I forget what we called it, but uh, I certainly do remember watching Thief in the Night uh, at one of those things. Oh, of course. Uh, uh, classic. Was, oh, t- super classic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the white shirt and the back black pants and the squeaky black shoes and um, the whole nine yards. So, uh, yeah, that's where I also came from. And unlike people in the emergent church movement, I didn't just throw it all out as I 
got older, but as I started getting into apologetics and felt called the ministry, um, I did have to be consistent and I had to be consistent in regards to the hermeneutics I was using, the exegesis, because uh, that was already, I already recognized that was the issue in dealing with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses and others was the inconsistencies in their, their approaches to scripture. Um, and so I had to be consistent. I, I couldn't have inconsistencies on my, my side while I'm pointing out inconsistencies on the other. And so it was, it was more of a slow process of, um, you know, I remember the first time I, I realized, wow, look, the New Testament has a plurality of elders in the church, huh? I wonder why we never discussed that, why we didn't have any conversations in the church about uh, why do we have a board of deacons that hire a pastor and there's only one pastor and how does that work and and why did the apostles go around ordaining elders in churches and you know so i i remember the first day it's like i really need to be thinking about this kind of stuff and uh, so along the lines uh once i started dealing well scroll back a little bit i had a um a relative that taught at tennessee temple university and my parents went back to visit that relative once. And when they came back, they were talking about how churches were splitting, um, which you might want to do a webcast about churches splitting. Um, but uh, churches were splitting back east over this issue of the King James Bible. Now, <laughs> I grew up using uh, the King James. Most of my Bible memory verses still come out in King James. Um, and didn't have any problem with that. It had never really been introduced to much of it. I, I did have a friend in high school gave me some Jack Chick stuff. And I found out, interestingly enough, he was not a Trinitarian. I uh, didn't know that in high school, but um, but he was into the King James stuff. He was a oneness Pentecostal. And so I started realizing there were some issues along those lines early on. And then once I started taking uh, Greek and studying these issues, I knew how important this was in dealing with Mormonism because Mormonism says the Bible is the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. And for Mormons, it really wasn't an issue of translation. It was an issue of transmission. And they claimed that the many plain and precious truths have been removed from scripture. The Book of Mormon even said that. So I knew early on how important this was. And so I actually, interestingly enough, in, in Bible college started, not only was I starting to study this, but I actually corresponded with David Otis Fuller. I took the time to write to him and, and to ask him some questions. And we went back and forth a number of times uh, at that point in time. And so uh, that was a part of my background, but it hadn't remained a central topic until I think it was 93-ish when um, Gail Ripplinger's book uh, came on the scene. <laughs> oh, that. And um, a... a uh, a volunteer for the ministry. His ministry was very small at the time, still is very small, but relatively speaking, but not as far as outreach goes. Um, but a volunteer uh, called me and said, you need to listen to the local Christian radio station. There's this woman on here and she's, she's saying some amazing things. And so I turned it on and it was Gail Ripplinger. And I tried to call in, uh, wasn't able to get on that program. Um, and through some, I'm not sure exactly how it worked out. I finally talked to the host of the program and he said, well, um, she won't debate anybody that hasn't read her book. And so uh, <laughs> if, you'd be willing to, if, if, if you'd be willing to come by and, and read her book, then we can work something out. And I'm like, 
all right, fine. So I go by and I pick up this black book with a red dragon on the front and start reading it. And it's just, you lose I all mean, your brain there cells. Some, uh, there, there are oh some, goodness. there, there are some uh, Jehovah's witness books out there that have a huge error content per page, but nothing that ever can come close <laughs> to the insanity of, of new age Bible versions. And so I started working through this thing and I started making notes. And so I had all these notes because I, I then contacted, it was, I think it was KRDS radio. Now that I think about it. And the guy contacted her and, and we set up a two day debate, uh, only half an hour per day, which is ridiculous. Have you, have you heard the, the tapes of this? Oh, I've, I, yeah, I went all the way down the rabbit hole once I found your work. <laughs> okay. All right. Cause it's, it was amazing. And I'll be honest with you. I did not expect the second show to happen and it almost didn't. Um, I really didn't. And the, the, obviously the host was very much on her side. Uh, but it was, it was, it was bad. It, that was, that was where we, we talked about acrostic algebra and that's when she informed us that, that God calls, even though she used NASV uh, and I said, but you called it NASB everywhere else in your book, but there you did NASV because that's the only way the acrostic algebra would work. Well, that's what God calls it. So, so God, God refers <laughs> oh to goodness. the NASV rather than the NASB, I guess. And somehow she knows this uh, because God told her. And it's, it's hard to have debates with people who have private conversations with God and uh, you know, <laughs> how they, they roll. Um, but it was it was pretty amazing, and as you probably know, that was the last time Gail Ripplinger ever debated anybody. Uh, <laughs> yep, that you ruined it. Forward, she had a specific list of verses that she would send for any interview or questions for any interview, and she never did that again. Because <laughs> so what happened was um, we started getting a lot of requests from from bookstores, from Christian bookstores for the notes that I had written up for the debate with Gail Ripplinger. And so my dad read a print shop at a large Southern Baptist church and we typeset the notes and we put it together in this uh, new age Bible versions refuted. It's just a little pamphlet. I forget how many pages it was. It had some substance to it. It was fairly lengthy. And we started getting requests literally from all 50 States for this stuff from Christian bookstores. And one day I was talking with my, editor at Bethany House, I already had, I don't know, about four or five books out, mainly on Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, subjects like that. And he said, hmm, sounds like a book. And <laughs> so uh, I think I wrote the book in about four months, if I recall correctly. Um, Impressive. Uh, it was, yeah, it was pretty much all I did uh, between riding my bike. I had just started riding in 93. And so that was about the only thing I, I did when I wasn't writing was, um, was working on that book. And then we made the mistake. I sent a copy of it. I sent a copy of, of the chapter on the King James Onlyus to Gail Ripplinger. And she didn't respond to me, but she wrote to Bethany House uh, threatening to sue them if they published this. And so that delayed the coming out of the book because they had to run it by all their lawyers and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And of course she never did. Um, but uh, that was just, that was her response 
was not to refute anything that she couldn't refute anything that I said, obviously. Um, but that was the kind of mindset that 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 kind of King James only has. And uh, so that came out in um, early 95, I think. And um, as that that then resulted in the eight part Ankerberg series uh, that we did uh, on the John Ankerberg show, which is still one of my fondest memories, <laughs> um, especially when the guy from the NASB was uh, struck dumb um, and couldn't talk. Um, oh, man, that was <laughs> just, just amazing stuff. Uh, and, and of course the stuff that happened between the shooting, between the episodes and between the takes, the stuff that would, would come from Sam Gipp especially was, oh, was just classic comedy. I mean, it just, it, it, it really, really, really was. And, and I knew what to expect but the other guys never really had dealt one-on-one -on -one with King James only us very much. They're scholars, you know, Dan Wallace and stuff, you know, and they're just looking at these guys like what planet did these guys land from? Wow. Can't believe how do you even interact with this type of stuff? So anyway, uh, that sort of started the whole thing. And, and, uh, my file started filling up with letters from people saying, man, if you had just written this a few years earlier, our church wouldn't have split. I wouldn't have had to come back from the mission field because our church split and we lost our support and just on and on and on and on. And um, certainly in the now, what, 20, what are we up to now? Um, 26 years, something like that. Um, since, uh, uh, no, um, it came out 95-ish. So yeah, we're looking, yeah, wow. I am getting old. And um, I sort of feel like Joe Biden there for a second. Huh? Where am I? What day is it? I don't know. Um, but uh, uh, you know anyway, the thing. what time is it? I don't know. What day of the week? Uh, but uh, we've certainly had a huge impact. I mean, let's, we, we know that we've had, I, I know that I am undoubtedly the most hated person amongst them uh, because that book has just had that, that level of impact on the, on the movement. Um, but let's be honest with you, uh, given the nature of the IFB movement as a whole, it functions on fear and you, you're taught to fear being exposed, uh, exposing yourself, that kind of thinking is, is considered an act of apostasy. It's you're you're showing a weakness in essence. And so there are just a lot of people that just will not even, they won't even take the time to will not even entertain it. No, no, yeah, no, exactly. No, no, that, that's how you, that's how you show your faithfulness. You see, right. And um, so uh, you can't you can't defeat that kind of uh, that kind of thinking with uh, with reason. But once people want to know and 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 realize once they start looking around and realizing you know I'm not I'm not being told the whole story, then uh, that book has really helped a lot of people to. Um, in fact, my my fellow pastor at Apologia, uh, Jeff Durbin, the first Christian book he read after his conversion was King James Holding Controversy. So, uh, I'm not sure that's what I would recommend. Yeah, that's uh, a really uh, weird place to start, but yeah. okay. Yeah, well, that's strange, but Learn anyway. about the crazy so, Christians, I guess. Know, well, yeah. it's funny when you mentioned Gail Ripplinger. So uh, uh, I have a couple of things that has come up recently. So the other day I met with my pastor, uh, him and I were doing a ministry meeting uh, for coffee, God bless it. And we sat down and I look up and it was one of those coffee houses that have like random books on the shelf. Just you know, for whatever, and you can pop, leave one there, take one. 
And I look up and I see New Age. I was like, no, it is like <laughs> Bible versions. Gail Ripley. I was like, there's no way. So I got the shirt up and sitting there on, the, on it. And I, I headed it to Pastor John because he's never been around this crowd before. He's flipping through it. He's like, this is insanity. <laughs> I was like, yeah, no kidding. Then my first pastor it at door, I walked through the library and there was two copies sitting on the shelf. And I instantly grabbed them, just chucked them on into the trash. Like, no, we're not doing that here. Not doing it. Just, <laughs> and then recently on uh, our, actually our Facebook page, I had a person that said that there is at least some accuracy in Gail on every page of Gail's uh, uh, book, but. Well, she does, she does use the definite articles. So yeah, the, the word the <laughs> is normally fairly accurate. Yeah. And then, and then he goes, but there's hundreds of errors in James White's book. And I'm like, and this person really oh wants God. to debate me. Uh, and I'm like, well, and right now my life is just too busy and I don't have the time, but one day I will, because there's a lot of issues that are uh, at stake there that I was like, really? But anyhow, uh, so it's just really funny where whenever you, you mentioned Gail Ripplinger, I was like, that happened to me three days ago. I was just sitting there in the coffee <laughs> shop and I was like, there's no way that's, that's Gail's book sitting there. This thing keeps haunting me everywhere I go. Now you got a stamp for your birthday that says heretical nonsense. You should go back to that coffee shop and stamp it. I was actually Just do everyone a favor. I was thinking about doing that actually because yeah, that heretical nonsense for uh, research purposes only stamp. I was thinking oh, yeah. about taking that there. And just bam. I have, uh, I have a few of those. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like you definitely of all people would have a collection of those. <laughs> so anyway, so that's how you got into the King James only topic. So that's actually really fascinating, and I think. You actually take the time to flesh that out and take it head on. Whether everyone agrees or disagrees with your conclusions, it's great to have somebody who actually speaks to that side of things. Because there's actually that part of the IFU, people like Sam Gipp and uh, Ruckman and all these other crazy groups over there, they actually have a loud voice. They're very loud people. Um, and like you said, since they're fear-inducing, it controls a lot, thousands. There's thousands of people in the IFB. Um, I still it makes me shudder to think that at the school I first went to had 6,000 people in the church. Mm. So it's just mind numbing. So with that being said, I would like to talk about this and kind of flesh some things out that are big topics that come up when you're talking to King James only Cause as you mentioned before, not of it, a lot of it's not reasonable right? A lot of it is a lot of chest thumping, a lot of fear inducing, a lot of mischaracterizations and false equivalencies all over the place. But when it comes to these, what are some things that you would say are key components for lay people, you know, who aren't textual critics, they're not scholars, they're not theologians or philosophers. So what would you say are some of the key components for lay people to understand regarding textual history before they get hoodwinked into King James onlyism? Well, people have just got to understand that King James onlyism can only exist when you when you apply different standards. Um, if you apply the same standards to the King James that you apply to any other Bible translation, if you understand that the King James has gone through revisions, that there are different versions of the King James, there's a Cambridge edition uh, that uh, that has differ, differing readings, for example, uh, from the Oxford edition. Um, if you understand, if you've read the prologue that was written by the translators to the reader and, and take the time to, to figure out what they meant and why they were saying the things that they were saying, if you put it in the spectrum of English translations, recognize it wasn't the first um, and that there were translations before it, and then recognize that the English language did not exist when the New Testament was written, so you have to you have to place it within the realm of 
um, faithfulness as a translation. Um, the King James only position disappears when you do those things. It, it, it simply disappears. The, all the King James translators would not be King James onlyists. They, they would be mortified, absolutely mortified to hear the stuff that is said in their name uh, <laughs> by, by people today. And they just, they, they knew too many languages um, to be, be caught up in this kind of silliness. They just, they just would not even begin to understand it. And so if you apply the same standards to the King James, if you, if you recognize it for what it is, um, there is no King James only movement. So what happens is um, there is a tremendous amount of equivocation. There is a tremendous amount of uh, making the word of God the King James Bible, when the word of God obviously existed long before the King James Bible. It existed in a language other than the King James Bible. Uh, it existed. And, and in fact, if it, anybody who has any serious connection to church history, which I didn't have in the fundamentalist movement at all. Um, church history was Billy Graham. That's that, you know, <laughs> and he was, and he was questionable. Um, I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, literally, I remember as a youth being given the trail of blood, uh, booklet, um, which a lot of these guys do accept as being, uh, you know, accurate church history. But if you actually understand, uh, something about church history and something about the, uh, the, the means by which Christ has built his church for 2,000 years, then you realize that what happened in the fourth century is just as important, if not more important, than what has happened in the 20th or 21st century of church history. And that means they had to have a Bible, but they didn't have the King James. And it's self-evident that people like Athanasius, the great uh, Bishop of Alexandria, Oh, did I say Alexandria? Oh, um, he was, he was, he wasn't the bishop of Caesarea. He wasn't the, the Byzantine bishop. Uh, oh, he wasn't no. the bishop of Antioch. Um, he was the bishop of Alexandria, and yet he was the one who stood firm on the deity of Christ after the Council of Nicaea, uh, where the whole world woke up and found itself Arian, as Jerome put it. Um, <laughs> and he defended, he defended the the deity of Christ. Uh, from a text other than the Greek that underlies the King James Version of the Bible. So if you, if you have any knowledge of church history, then you know that the Word of God had to have been functioning in every century. And therefore, to make the King James equal to the Word of God is to separate yourself from any meaningful understanding of what God's been doing in this world um, for, for the past 2,000 years. And so that really is, is the issue, is if you understand anything about how translations came about, if you understand anything about the Greek Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that is cited the vast majority of times by the New Testament authors, uh, many King James folks deny it even existed um, in history. Uh, if, if you understand almost anything about Out translation, it seems, um, is a mixture. There are times when it's quite literal. There are times when it is quite paraphrastic, and it sort of depends on which committee was was working on something. Um, every translation is that way, and so the more you know about those things, the less likely it is you're going to even give the time of day to 
any type of King James only uh, rhetoric. But the fact is, uh, when I was first presented with King James only stuff, it was always in the context of this is how you believe the Bible and protect the Bible against liberalism and against all the horrible things happening today. And of course, there are liberals. I mean, I went to Fuller Seminary for crying out loud. I, I called myself <laughs> their token fundamentalist. Uh, uh, I was everybody was to my left at at, at Fuller, um, but but that was really good for me because I, I learned to uh, take the good and throw out the bad, and without living in fear that uh, that something something was going bad was going to happen to me. And so I. I think if people will simply uh, recognize that a, they're, they're being tricked when someone is saying, well, this is how you hold firmly uh, to scripture is you have to hold on to just one translation because everything else leads to liberalism. Uh, yes, liberals use other translations. Doesn't mean anything. They didn't believe the King James either. Uh, so they don't, they don't believe what the King James says. They don't believe what their liberal translation says because they're liberals. They don't believe that there is a divine revelation. Uh, but you don't, you don't abandon the, the most solid foundation for believing in scripture um, just to try to hide from the criticisms of the liberals or not engage the liberals or live in fear of the liberals. Believe me, as someone who, well, just give an illustration. When I did my first Muslim debate with Dr. Shabir Ali, he wasn't Dr. Shabir Ali at that time, but Shabir Ali in 2006 at Biola University. When that was, a, we had like 2,500, 3,000 people there. And halfway through the debate during the break, he came up, shook my hand and said, congratulations. Because he knew what was going on. And what had happened was his approach was to use liberalism against Christian apologists. And most Christian pastors don't really engage that kind of stuff. They don't know how to engage in uh, stuff that comes from the left. I went to Fuller. I was used to it. I had been doing it for years. And so he didn't even know how to respond to where I was coming from because I wasn't at all impacted by his use of liberalism. I could point out where it was inconsistent. And so that's something we need to be able to do, but fundamentalists can't do that because they won't listen to the liberals, just like the liberals won't listen to us. Right. I exactly. mean, every, every uh, John Dominic Crossan, there was a reason for him, but uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, John Shelby Spong, all these people that I've debated in public, uh, back when you could do it in person without hiding behind <laughs> a mask or, or stick yourself with experimental genetic vaccines. Um, these individuals, uh, they had never even given a second thought to what I would be saying because they didn't believe that we have anything meaningful to say at all. Right. So the liberals ignore us because they don't think we're smart enough to bother to listen to. But the IFB guys ignore the liberals because they're afraid because they've seen what's happened in the past when they've sent people off to universities and they've ended up going into apostasy. Right. Uh, so they're afraid of exposure to these erroneous views, because when you really dig down deep, they're they're not certain about how strong their foundations actually are. And so uh, it ends up going both directions as far oh, as yeah. that's concerned. So we've we've pointed out multiple times that the IFB is actually like very similar to liberalism in oh, yeah. many, many ways. 
Um, yeah, we don't see it like a line. We see it more like a circle where you got kind of the middle of the road people down here. And then as you go farther left or right, you end up meeting in the at the top with the same ideas. You're, you're emotionally driven arguments. You're fear mongering. You're not giving into logic or reason. You are just essentially using a bully pulpit to tell people that you're right. And if you can't win the argument, shout, 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 shout louder. Shout yep. louder. Get louder. Uh, <laughs> no, that's actually funny because I'm not sure. Are you familiar with who Brenda is with God is Gray on YouTube? Okay. Um, you. Brace yourself <laughs> it, when you go there because you're going to want to refute everything. She's uh, out, outspoken, uh, progressive Christian, pro-abortion, the whole nine yards. So I'm using Christian here very loosely. Um, and she, we, she invited us on to talk about abortion on her channel. We had a three-hour conversation. And then she never posted it because she <laughs> thought we had nothing to respond to. And she never posted it. Luckily, we recorded it on our end because we knew this would happen. And yeah. then we ended up posting it anyway. But yeah, you're right. Liberals, they, they think that those fundamental people have no response to anything. So that's, that's awesome. I love that. And that's one of my reasons why I've appreciated you and Pastor Durbin's work is because you guys push against progressivism and you also push against Jehovah's Witnesses and, uh, and Mormons. And one of my things I wanted to mention as well, as far as Jehovah, whether it comes to King James onlyism, I pointed this out. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses, if they're not going to use their version, they will always use the King James instead because mm -hmm. the language is a little bit more ambiguous in it, where they can play a little bit more fast and loose with it. Well, and, and they and they did that for years. I mean, uh, they didn't come up with the NWT till the mid fifties. So a lot of their older literature had used the King James anyways. So exactly. Yeah. So now some of the, I have a bunch of random things I wanted to just kind of hit you with and let you see how you'd respond and we'll get what we get time for. Okay. I asked sure. a bunch of the people in the community what they wanted us to ask. So we're going to go just jump into some of these questions on the number one, which was not a surprise to me is first John five, seven. So <laughs> you had a comment. So what do you say about First John 5, 7, does it belong? Does it not belong? And if it doesn't belong, why? Well, uh, let me let me just be bold from the start. Um, if First John 5, 7 is original, then we have no hope of ever knowing what the New Testament originally said. Oh, wow. And, I, and, that's, and that's what I should have said, actually, on the last question, is I think the key issue must be this. You have to start here. I want to know what the apostles wrote, not what a scribe 500 years, 1,000 years, 1,300 years later thought they should have written, but what they wrote, because as I understand it, that is the area in which the activity of the Holy Spirit brings about inspired scripture. It's, it's men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I want that. And the key issue, that, that's what it's got to be. Because once you put that down firmly, then all of the arguments for traditionalism fall apart. Because you can't get back to that by tradition. You have to get back to that by the means God has given to us, which is the manuscripts that were copied all across the Roman Empire, even during periods of persecution. So when I say... If 1 John 5, 7 is original, we have no idea what the New Testament actually said. What I'm pointing out is that 1 John 5, 7 is not a part of the Greek manuscript tradition of the New Testament for over a thousand years. 
Wow. So it plainly, and there are defenders of the TR Byzantine text type that will honestly say this, Bergen knew this, but it arose in the fifth, sixth century at the earliest from the Latin. Mm -hmm. And so if it originates in the Latin and it does, that means if it was original, that entire theologically relevant texts can disappear from the original language for hundreds of years, only to be reinserted from other languages. That means that the, the real argument that we have in, with the Bart Ehrmans and the skeptics of the world is that the manuscript tradition is tenacious. That is, it contains all the original readings and we can demonstrate that. If 1 John 5, 7 was original, that's disproven. That's gone. It's done. So what other texts have been inserted at some point in time? We just haven't discovered it from the other languages. What other texts have been lost? We don't know. <laughs> so right. clearly the Kama Johannium uh, came from the Latin. It was not a part of the Greek. The first two editions that Erasmus compiled, uh, starting in 1516, did not contain it. He was attacked for not having it. And Codex Monfortianus was written around 1520 with it inserted, though not in the same form that it's in the Textus Receptus today, um, sp specifically to put pressure on Erasmus to insert it, which he did in his third edition of the Greek New Testament. Mm -hmm. It was in the fourth and fifth editions. Therefore, it's in Stephanos, Beza, and hence in the King James Version of the Bible. Um, but it is not a part of the Greek manuscript tradition in any way, shape, or form. And so to the, the argumentation, and, and here's the next thing. The argumentation that you have to use to try to substantiate it means that you have to argue one way for that text and then a completely different way for every other text in the Textus Receptus that doesn't have major variants. And then for the other verses that are clear errors in the Textus Receptus, Ephesians 3, 9, Romans 16, 5, et cetera, et cetera, you have to use another form of argumentation for each one of those. So you can't have one form of argumentation. You can't have consistency. You have to have one standard here, one standard here, one hit standard, one standard. You have to have all sorts of different standards. And back, I mentioned the debate with Shabir Ali, I, I coined a phrase that has become rather widely used specifically for that debate. Inconsistency is the sign of a failed argument. Ooh, I like that. And so for, <laughs> for King James onlyism, the inconsistency of all the forms of argumentation that you have to use, different ones for different texts, is a sign of a failed argument. And so um, the Kami Johannium was not written by John. And if it was, we would have no way of knowing one way or the other. And hence, the only way around all this is to do what the radical re-inspire it King James only us do and say, <laughs> doesn't matter. God re-inspired the Bible between 1604 and 1611 anyways, which <laughs> is a complete capitulation to any doctrine of providence, providential preservation at all. If he had to re-inspire it, in the middle of the 17th century, then obviously it had been lost. Mm -hmm. And so he did not. So those guys, I don't know why they quote Psalm 12, which has nothing to do with what they're making the application of anyways, but <laughs> I don't know why they quote it because they don't believe it. 
if they believe it's been re-inspired, then they believe it was lost or it wouldn't have needed to be re-inspired. Wow. Yeah, that's and that kind of did it was an open and shut case right there because you're you're right. That's what hit me too. I'm like, wait, wait, if this was re-inspired, then that means that they didn't have it to begin with, which yeah. means God's word failed. No preservation. God failed in his preservation and had to hit the reset button. And I, I believe in a sovereign God that wouldn't have to hit a reset. Well, not button, only that, you know? but let's just let's just think on a really basically here i in my ifb days the council of nicaea i don't think it was ever mentioned um but what texts were used by the people who defended the deity of christ at the council of nicaea and then for 40 years afterwards in the minority continued defending the deity of christ so that we have that precious truth today it's amazing how many king james only us will go oh modern versions are weak on the deity of christ look <laughs> at first timothy 3 16 blah 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 blah. most of them have never defended the deity of christ against a muslim in a mosque anywhere uh they would not do it if they tried <laughs> but the point is that they're oh we must defend the deity of christ okay the people that defended the deity of Christ, even when they were in the minority, when they had Roman soldiers chasing them around in the fourth century, like Athanasius did, what text did they use? Did they have the TR? No, they didn't have the TR. They had what, what is loosely called the Alexandrian text today, and that's how they defended the deity of Christ, and that's why you still have it as an Orthodox Christian today. So... <laughs> What I mean, again, any knowledge of church history and this whole mythology just collapses in upon itself. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, so that's why when I was listening to Nathan's debate that he did, oh. um, <laughs> and I'm listening to the guy he's, what's the guy's name? Mick, Mick, Mitch Knapp. 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 Mitch Knapp. I've taught church history since the <laughs> 1990s on the undergraduate and graduate levels, and I'm listening to this guy just turn history into mashed potatoes i've i mean this guy would not pass basic church history 101 it was shocking it, it was appalling it was appalling it was it was stunning it really was it was horrible Ugh. i was a. Uh, we did a two-hour review of all this mitch Knupp stuff and I, I made one misstatement someone called me out on it i had made a corrective statement but it was something small it was uh i, I credit something to augustine that wasn't augustine or augustine depending on how snotty we want to be <laughs> but uh gotta be careful uh but yeah that was that was um, absolutely amazing and i i use i don't even think we could call that a debate by the way because what we had was nathan trying to make a cumulative case there was no cross-examination was no, nathan no. trying to make a cumulative case and then a ravings of a madman that's, that's well, really that, what it was. Yeah, and and the questions afterwards just saddened me. They really, they really saddened oh, me yeah. because it was it was a community celebration of ignorance, is what yep. it was. And it's that's a that that should not be how Christians do things. Hey, uh, anybody who's got uh, the ear of Mitch Knup. You want to debate Calvinism, buddy? I'm I'm standing ready. <laughs> have have, have, oh, have fifth wheel will travel. Uh, so uh, we will host yeah. it. I, if he will get the internet, which he says he doesn't have it, but if he will get the internet, I am. Oh even no willing. no 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 no! In person. Oh, Let's in do person. This in person, baby. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm good with that. I was going to offer to be, moderate that because I just enjoy it. But of course, well, we have a church here. We can host it. Oh yeah, we do. There it. you go. Because seriously, that, Love uh, to. that that would be the the cross examination would test the level of patience of the moderator 
um, to an extreme degree. And I think we'd have to have lengthy conversations beforehand as to what actually amounts to a question um, and, and what amounts to an answer. Uh, because I, I didn't get the feeling that that was his strong suit, but yeah, I would do it. I would, I would. I oh would yeah. And everyone knows I'm not, I'm not a Calvinist, but I'd be happy to watch that debate all day long. That's actually yeah. the only area Well, well, you and I do a Calvinism first. Once you're converted, you get things straightened out, then you can, <laughs> then you can go from there. Oh, so, oh man. I'm, I'm already making him cringe, but so far I'm like, I'm like, oh, I think Molinism makes sense to me. So uh, there's that cross eye. I was, I, was, I was waiting for that face. I knew it. I was going to say it and I was going to watch it be like, oh, hey, if, if you want to, if you want to go with a theory that even the Jesuits who created it have abandoned, it's up to you. It's okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shoot. We might need to have, we might, if you're ever willing to come on again, we might have to have you on to discuss Calvinism or Reformed Doctrine, because I do think there's some great things in Reformed Doctrine. So, um, well, anyway. I think the big thing with our channel is we don't care if you're Calvinist or Molinist or Arminian. We, we believe that there's a unified church around the fundamentals of the faith, and we're not going to start challenging people's belief systems because we disagree slightly with something that that's still in the Bible. <laughs> so we can, we can, yeah. I call them in-house debates. I'm like these are yeah. in-house debates. We can punch each other in the face out of love, and then get bloody with it. That uh, you know, ha have a cold one at the end. It'll be fun. Well, I think uh, some <laughs> of the best examples of that have been has been Dr. White and Dr. Brown in some of your debates. I, I thoroughly enjoy them because I know you guys are friends, and but you disagree, and they're fun to watch. Oh yeah, that's those are some of my favorite debates is watching those two because especially because there's like a brotherly camaraderie going on there. It's a lot of fun. Although anyway, when you guys are both in the same team. God help who's ever on the other end. Yeah, no, that's not fair. I, you know, we're supposed to be talking about King James Oleism, but I do have to address that. That is a seemingly unfair to have you and Dr. Michael Brown on the same team. Oh, <laughs> the yeah, Unitarian uh, debate. Oh my gosh, that was the amazing. Trinitarian debate and the uh, all the, the sexual progressive. The oh my word! Oh, I was just like, I've watched that one twice. That yeah, was so good. Well, well, I'll, I'll just tell you. Um, Michael and I had not really communicated a whole lot for a while before we did the Trinitarian debate. Um, and yet we were finishing each other's sentences <laughs> and worked very, very, very well together. There was, there was no discussion beforehand as to how we were going to do that or anything. It, it just, but we, we worked really well together. And then when we did the homosexuality debate, you'll notice that we were smack dab on time both of us do radio programs so you have to be smack dab on time you, you can't you can't skate you know skate over that and that's been one of the big advantages i've had in debates is i grew up doing radio and so my opponent always looks like they're frazzled they they don't get their statements done because they don't know how to use a clock um and i i get done and i've finished my point and i'm on time and because i grew up doing radio so he and i worked real well together but during that debate, in the rebuttal period, uh, so we did our, our opening statements from the podium, and then we did the rebuttals sit, sitting down. And we had folks come up to us as soon as we were done, and they said, how did you do that? Clearly, you guys had that memorized. And the reality was, again, there had been no discussion of it whatsoever. But even when the debate was over, Michael and I just, you know, the the microphones are turned off and I just I looked over at him and he looked over at me and I was like what happened during the rebuttal <laughs> and he said I don't know but that was amazing because 
were finishing each other's sentences. It was like we had it pre-memorized. It was one of the most amazing spiritual experiences during a debate I've ever had. And uh, it was just seamless, but without any preparation that we had no common notes. I couldn't see what he had written. You couldn't see what I had written. It, 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 wow. was, yeah, it was, it was so good um, because was, I've used that debate. Yeah, I've said it to many people uh, who have struggled with that topic, like watch this and notice one is my feels, my feels, my feels. And the other one is a straight biblical exegesis all the way down from, from both of them. So yeah, it's just not fair. It's just not a fair advantage. You guys work too good together. <laughs> We're just fanboying at this point. So yeah, anyway, I'll stop fanboying and go back to the questions at hand. But uh, and then the other, I think this is similar to First John 5, 7, but the longer ending of Mark. You know, I just did, uh, well, just did. Within the past six months, I did a... Uh, fairly lengthy online debate. It's the first really online debate that I'm actually including as my 175th debate. Uh, I much prefer seeing somebody uh, having that direct interaction, but you know, it, it, it is what it is. It's 2021, uh, what, what can you do? Um, but uh, I debated um, a TR only advocate on uh, the longer ending of Mark and on Ephesians 3.9. And so you can, you, can, you can listen to that and recognize that of the two major textual variants in the New Testament, there are two major textual variants in the New Testament. When I say major, as in size, there are 12 verses each. And that's what's called the long reigning of Mark, Mark 16, 9 to 20. And then the, the uh, pericope adultery, the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 7, 53 through 8, 11. The reality is the textual evidence for the long reigning of Mark is significantly better than the textual evidence for these women caught in adultery. It's much, there's much earlier uh, attestation that can be mustered for the long reigning of Mark. And so you can make a case in using standard textual critical argumentation. Uh, it's interesting, uh, just... 10 minutes before the dividing line today, this came and this is the three volumes of the new Editio Critica Mayor. This is the massive New Testament project that's being done right now. It's supposed to be done in 2030, whether it will be or not is questionable, but this is the most complete um, Greek New Testament that has ever been produced. It'll probably be- wow at least 38. I mean, this is just Mark right here. So uh, you can figure out how big the rest of the rest of the New Testament is going to be. Um, and I haven't looked at the longer ending, though I know what it's going to say. Um, but the, you can you can at least utilize this kind of information and make an argument for the longer ending. Uh, whereas it's much harder to do that for the woman taken in adultery because the first manuscript evidence for it is from the fifth century. And in a very unreliable manuscript called Codex Beze Cantabrigensis, Codex D, um, which is sort of the living Bible of the ancient church. Um, and that's where it first appears. So fundamentally my strongest reason for rejecting the longer ending is because there are other endings. If the, if the, if the longer ending had been there all over the place from the start, there wouldn't have been need to write other endings that we have evidence of 
in the manuscript tradition today. Um, there are sub reasons to reject it in regards to style and content and things like that. Um, but uh, the, the, fu the fundamental reason is you wouldn't have a short ending and then another ending and then a medium ending and then the long ending and then all the variants you have in the long ending if it had been the original ending to the Gospel of Mark. Um, but of all of those texts, there's no comparison between, for example, the Kama Johannium and the longer ending of Mark, none whatsoever. You can literally argue that you've got second century evidence for the longer ending. You got nothing like that for the the, the Kama Johannium. Mm. So they're not even on the they're not even on the same planet as wow. far as argumentation is concerned. So if someone wants to make that argument, great, fine, we can disagree. King James onlyists aren't making that argument using that kind of data. It's a traditional thing, uh, but uh, they will make reference to people who make those kinds of arguments, even though those very same people will say, yeah, but 1 John 5, 7 isn't the case, and the woman taking adultery isn't the case, Ephesians 3, 9 isn't the case. They're, they're not consistent in the sources that they use at, at that point. Right, right. That's kind of what I've noticed as well. Um, it took me a while to kind of, when I first heard about those two sections, uh, I was honestly shocked. I was like, what? There's things? But then as I looked at it, I'm like, oh, this actually makes sense, especially when you understand how textual history tends to work. People add things to texts all the time. There's also the teachings of church fathers, and sometimes the teachings of the church fathers get inserted into texts, and there's all sorts of stuff that can happen. And Well, you know, to be honest with you, the vast majority of, of variations in the manuscripts are uh, representative of either standard errors of hearing or sight, uh, primarily errors of sight, like uh, the King James doesn't have, and such we are in 1 John 3, 1, in re reference to our being the sons of God. Uh, it's simple, what's called homoiteleton, similar endings uh, in, a, in a scribe early on in the Byzantine tradition. That's all it is. It's mm -hmm. very easy to identify. Um, there are very little, very few places where you have something like this. The, it's, it's now, in, with the woman taken in adultery, um, well, back up. The, the longer ending of Mark, the reason is obvious why there would be something added later on. If, if it ended where it ended, people are like, that makes Mark different than Matthew and Luke. And one thing that's obvious and clear, and I don't think I, I do. Hold on a second. This is my Synopsis Quator Euangeliorum. This is a Greek parallel uh, of the Synoptic Gospels. Ooh, that's cool. And when you look... When you look at the uh, uh, variants that are cited in it, uh, almost always the variants that you'll find are scribes who are either purposefully attempting to make Matthew's language sound like Mark's or Mark sound like Matthew's when they're talking about the same event, same story. Um, so they're either purposefully doing that or they have, they're familiar with the story in Matthew and so when they're copying Mark, they inadvertently, because they, they know how, it's, how it goes, and so they, without intending to, insert a word or a phrase or something that's in Matthew or something like that. And so you can see it all the time when you, when you look at them in parallel with one another. Most people, that's not how they study the Synoptic Gospels, but it's extremely enlightening when you do so. 
So you've got a lot of parallel corruption where uh, scribes thought that Matthew, Mark, and Luke should say the exact same things. Why you would have three gospels that say the exact same things, I don't know. <laughs> Seems a little redundant. <laughs> it does seem redundant. And in fact, we end up learning all sorts of neat things by the fact that they don't say the same things in the exact same way, even when they're talking about the same, uh, same incident. Um, and I've, I did a presentation at G3, I don't know, about four years ago, three, four years ago now, uh, where I went through some of those texts in regards to the subject of inerrancy to help people understand um, what inerrancy is, what it isn't, and how to deal with what's called the synoptic problem. Uh, which is very frequently thrown at people because we don't, we don't tend to prepare our folks properly for that kind of, of stuff. So anyway, um, the longer ending of, of Mark if it ends at, at, at verse 8, then that makes it different, and scribes don't like that. Mm -hmm. In the same way, though, a uh, woman taking adultery, most people don't realize that story appears three different places in the manuscripts in the Gospel of John alone. And in a couple of manuscripts, it's not even in John, it's in Luke. <laughs> Oops. So if you have one story, and that's the only, that is the only text like that in the entirety of the New Testament. So if you have one story that people really like, I mean, people like this so much, somehow, Mel Gibson got it into the Passion movie and it had nothing to do with the Passion movie. That is so, that's, it's everybody's, as Dan Wallace says, it's my favorite story that's not actually in the Bible. Um, and so, so uh, if, if it, people like it that much, it is clearly an example of a story trying to find a place to land. And it eventually landed where it did in John 7. I'd be curious, um, oh, sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was, I'd be curious. Why do you think that that has been a story? So do you think it's a story that happened with Jesus at one point and then I was added later due to like oral tradition? Or do you think it's just some sort of nice folklore? Is it just all, we don't know. And that's just, you're good with that. By the way, I just looked at my watch, not because I'm Joe Biden and I don't know what day <laughs> of the week it is. Um, but I, I, I just got texted by John Cooper. And so- I just, I just wanted you to know that. So that oh, oh be, are you? Jealous. So I be a little jealous. I'm jealous. Just, I'm just a, a little bit jealous. I'm a little. I'm a little jealous. You know, I have reached out to him. He should put us in touch. I'd love to talk to him about progressive Christianity as a as a musician. Um, but anyway. okay, well, it, it's possible. Uh, you know, we 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 chat regularly. Um, no, they just finished a new album, and he he was just letting me know we just finished the exact last one, and uh, so they're. He's nice. really excited about that. Good for him. And, uh, and I'm, I'm excited about it too. So anyway, um, so the, the, uh, the, the evidence then for that story clearly tells us it's, it's secondary in nature, which then leads to the inevitable question you should be asking or want to ask at this point in time, which everybody asks me when I present this information. And that is, well, then do you preach it? Do you preach it? Because it's in people's, um, it's in people's Bibles. They may have not have looked at the footnote down there that says most early manuscripts don't contain this text or whatever terminology is used. Most people ignore that stuff because they don't even want to think about it. <laughs> uh, but my answer, 
is straightforward. Uh, I would not preach either the long ending or the pericope adultery as scripture, but I wouldn't just skip over it without making sure that my church was fully aware of what the reasons for that are. Now, any church where I'm a pastor already knows I'm a weirdo. And so they already have probably endured way too many Bible studies and presentations on textual criticism to begin with. So they'd already know what, what the reasons were. Um, and I probably wouldn't address the issue if I was preaching in somebody else's church in the first place, unless I was asked specifically to talk about just that. But if I were preaching through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, um, I would preach 752, and then you'll notice 813, wow, comes naturally right after 752, <laughs> like they were written together, because they were. Um, and But I would make sure that either I had done a Sunday school class, I'd link people to a presentation I've done, because I've done presentations on this, it's probably at least half a dozen of them on YouTube someplace, um, something along those lines, just to make sure that people understood. We're not dodging it. When I preached through Hebrews, man, I tell you, I, I stopped at a, at a church in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago uh, on my way home on the road trip. And a young Indian man who had only been in the States for like five months from India, uh, just too excited to see me. Okay. I mean, I grew up listening to you and I'm like, oh, I feel old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Get me my Geritol. Um, but um, uh, he told me he listened to all 80 plus of my Hebrew sermons in India. Wow. Wow. And that's when I realized, wow, we live in a really blessed time. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've really taken, I don't think we've really been thankful for how blessed we've been. And I don't know how much longer we're going to get to do that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. at least for a while. Um, I am confident that Christ's kingdom will prevail, and the insanity we see around us cannot create a society that will last. Agreed. Uh, because it's based on lies. It will collapse. But we could go through some really difficult times before that, that takes place. But the point is, when I preached through Hebrews, um, I addressed a number of important and serious textual issues as a part of the sermon. Now that's, a lot of people would say, don't do that. I didn't think you could avoid it in the context of the book of Hebrews. There's two places, at least two places that I can think of where a textual variant fundamentally impacts the message that is being presented. Hmm. And so I think if you don't address those things, then you're you're putting your people in a position where if eventually they run into that information, they're going to be wondering, why didn't you tell me about that? Did you know about that? Did you just not study it deeply enough or whatever? And so I did, and it's, it's not easy to do, but I felt it was, I felt it was really necessary to do that. Well, it's funny you say that too, because um, with my pastor, <clears throat> sorry, 
apparently I swallowed a frog while you were talking. Um, so uh, I was talking to my pastor recently where I, I'm starting at apologetics and like uh, comprehensive theological class where we're going to approach a lot of the different positions in theology of the Christian church and going to th church history and apologetics and why is the faith reasonable and then textual history like I'm going to start going through a lot of these things. You're, um, you're doomed. You'll, you'll be reformed by the end of the year. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll definitely have change my back. Well, on. yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you the email where I finally go. The tulip makes sense. I, uh, solo deo. Well, you, you've read, you've read, you've read the Potter's Freedom, right? Um, I have not read the Potter's Freedom yet. <laughs> I know, I know. Trust me, my buddy Jordan is lambasting me about that regularly. That when you, when you, when you get done with it, then call. Me. I'll tell you what. You read it, and then we'll do the program deal <laughs> sounds like it sounds good to me how my word brian if you're gonna I'm come ready. you're gonna come over at like two in the morning you're gonna see me staring at the wall with like a glass full of whiskey be like it's all changed <laughs> oh yeah you have to get me out of recovery so yeah anyway i so going through i'm gonna go through all of that and uh, i was telling them for that very reason what you're saying right there i do not want people going to my church at frontline bible church to suddenly go I never knew what, and then have their entire faith go upside down and shipwreck the faith. I'm like, no, we, yeah. we have good reasons to believe that the scripture has been preserved and we got to talk about those issues. So I appreciate that. Um, and now I know we're running, we're running shorter on time because there's just so much to talk about, but this is definitely one I wanted to ask you. And it's just because it comes up every time I talk to King James only as for people are questioning King James onlyism is always, they bring up Westcott and Hort. And all the crazy beliefs, Those heretics, uh, and the heresy of them and origin and the whole nine. So I was just wondering if you could speak to that for a moment. Yeah, um, actually, um, Peter Gurry, uh, who teaches here at Phoenix Seminary, young fellow, he's actually younger than my son. And yet he has a PhD in CBGM, about the only guy who has a PhD in CBGM. Anyways, he, um, I was reading one of his articles recently where he was going through the life of Westcott and uh, the, or the origination of their New Testament and stuff like that, realize what they're doing is they're playing on the fact that most King James onlyists have no clue what Anglicans are about. Uh, the, the guy <laughs> that Nathan uh, debated certainly didn't. No. <laughs> um, I mean, oh my goodness. He, he actually no there they hadn't started doing infant baptism yet. And I'm just like, oh, please, you've <laughs> got to be kidding me. Talk about making stuff up on the fly. Um, <laughs> but basically, they're, they're just playing on the fact that, that independent fundamentalist Baptists, like I was, assumed that people in the past were just like we are today. And so what they do is they just point out standard stuff that Westcott and Hort said and did that all sorts of Anglicans would have believed at that particular point in time. And, but they just exaggerate that and then hence guilt by association. Um, and the reality is that some of the stuff, like some of the stuff that Gail Ripplinger did, she just used ellipses to completely change um, what the meaning of the text was. So there was one, I think it was Westcott, because Westcott was the more conservative of the two. I think it could, it could have been either one of them. I'd have to go back and look, it's been years, but she tried to make it sound like I think Westcott was worshiping Mary or thinking this is wonderful when she took out the very section where he talked about the idolatry of it all. 
and how repulsive it was. <laughs> like that. Like, ah, it doesn't fit. We'll just throw that up. Um, so you have to double check any of your citations. Um, Hort was certainly to my left. Westcott maybe a little bit to my left. Uh, but we have to remember who did the King James translation. They were, oh yeah, Anglicans. <laughs> the same, same That's group. also inconvenient. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and they would have had all sorts of beliefs that, you know, modern day Baptists, well, there was a Baptist burned in London in 1611. So uh, Baptists were still getting martyred at that particular point in time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's just, it's playing on the, the perversity of history in essence. They, they just know that people aren't going to know enough to be able to go, well, actually that's pretty much what most everybody believed at that particular point in time or, or something like that. And then they never bothered to make the connection and saying, and this therefore determined what readings they put into their New Testament. It had nothing to do with it at all. Uh, they just do the guilt by association thing. And hey, they do the same thing when they're debating mid-trib versus pre-trib for crying out loud. Yeah. So, so, I mean, if they'll do it for that, they'll do it for anything. That is very true. I, uh, that's actually, <laughs> I was thinking that about with that the entire time was how Anglican, how anti-Calvinist so many of them are. But then at the same time, like, do you know anything about what the Anglicans believe in that? Ever because... read the 39 articles? No. Because no, <laughs> no. plot twist, <laughs> they were pretty Calvinist. Uh, and then also my favorite is how usually anti-government the IFB is by nature, you know, they're all super conservative types. And now yeah, oh, pro America, like they usually are very much that way. And I'm also Flags like, and bunting and all yeah, sorts yeah, of the whole nine. Like and yeah. I'm like, you'd realize that the King James only translators had rules from the King that they had to follow to translate it to his approval. Right. Like, <laughs> and then even, even the printer, uh, had to be approved by the king. And when the printer messed up too many times, which he did, such as with the adulterer's Bible, where he forgot the word not in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Um, <laughs> that embarrassed the king so much, they chucked his tush in jail. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was, it was a different, very, very different time. Uh, most King James onlyists are not connected with history. And like I said, um, uh, once they do try to do history, it's it's normally a, an absolute train wreck. Yeah, usually quite the disaster piece, so to speak. Well, I think uh, speaking of disaster of history and not understanding it, um, this is one that some people want to have us ask you because you've described it so well in the past. Tell us about that critical text being found in the trash can. Okay, it's not a critical text. Um, long, long story short is we're talking about Codex Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus, yeah. And... Uh, and we're talking about Count von Tischendorf, there's a lot of controversy about how Sinaiticus ended up um, being in Russia and then sold to the British and, and the people at, uh, at the monastery, St. Catherine's Monastery, Mount Sinai, are still really upset about this. And they've been upset about this for a couple hundred years now. Uh, so it's just, when you live in a monastery, you get to be upset about very specific things because um, you're not doing much else uh, at that particular point in time. So anyway, you can go online and actually see all that manuscript now. There have been times when it's been somewhat widely separated because of how it was treated over history. But make a long story short, the King James only has tried to say 
that von Tischendorf found Codex Sinaiticus in a trash can and then made it the most important find of, of ever. What the reality is, is on one of his visits, a monk was taking some fragments to the kitchen to burn in the oven. And when he looked into the trash can, he found fragments of ancient manuscripts and he sort of freaked out. And that made the monks quite unwilling to share further information with him. Um, he kept some of what he found and it was his belief that some of what he found was a part of what he would eventually find as Codex Sinaiticus. But the Codex that contains Genesis through Revelation uh, from around the year 350. So it was, by, it was by far the earliest. By, by the way, von Tischendorf was a believer. He believed in the inspiration of scripture. He believed in its supernatural nature. Um, and in fact, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but most people think that Indiana Jones was actually patterned off of Constantine von Tischendorf. Oh, I did not know that. Yes, That's super yes. cool. Yeah. So he's ransacking ancient libraries because he is convinced that there must be still ancient manuscripts of the Bible that will help him to establish the antiquity of scripture. Hmm. And so on the last night that he was at St. Catherine's, and this was his third or fourth visit there, it had been years since the previous incident, he gave to the monk who was in charge of sort of seeing to his needs, um, a copy of the Greek Septuagint. And when the monk looked at it, he, he said, I've, I, I have a copy of this. Would you like to see it? And von Tischendorf's like, sure. So the monk goes to his room and from his closet, he takes a volume that is wrapped in red cloth. Now, monks do not wrap trash in red cloth, okay? Just so you know. <laughs> and they don't keep them in their closets. So this is something he valued highly. And so he lays it down and he takes this red cloth off and von Tischendorf is finally looking at what he's been looking for for decades. Because when he opens it, he immediately recognizes its great antiquity by the script in which it is written. And this time he's gotten smart. He doesn't freak out. He goes, uh, oh, hey, um, mind if I uh, look at this tonight, uh, sort of look through it and, oh, okay. So he takes it to his room and I'm sure he closes the door. And I don't have any scholarly evidence of this, but I am quite convinced that when he put it on his bed, this is what Tischendorf did. <laughs> silently, okay, very silently, because he didn't want to freak these guys out. He, he was awake the whole night, taking notes, not in it, obviously, but taking notes about it, tries to buy it. Monk says no. Um, basically, he uses the czar to eventually get it from the monks. They're not happy about that. Um, but that was how Codex Sinaiticus was discovered. Uh, was Tischendorf's steward, a monk, had it wrapped in red cloth in his closet. Yep. Uh, so that's not the same thing as a trash can. No, it doesn't sound uh, like trash at all. Nope. So, so the only connection to a trash can is the folios that were found in a trash can that von Tischendorf did think had fallen out of Sinaiticus. He did it, it make that, that theory that it's still somewhat argued, but let, let's say, say it was. The point is that the manuscript itself is from the fourth century. It had been used for almost 1500 years. 
and was considered a very prized possession by the monks there at Sinai. So it's such if, a if, long time. If you don't tell the whole story, <laughs> then it's real easy to create false impressions. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, we had uh, Pastor Nathan Rager on. You're familiar with him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, we had him on to debate some things and he tried to uh he tried to bring up that and i'm like that that's just not historically what happened at all uh it's debated about what the what the bucket was used for essentially but that's not what happened it was actually wrapped in red cloth so i, I appreciate you bringing that up but yeah we had him on and that was a, a good time it was it was a nice punch something for about two hours it was, it was a, kind it was of a, a dumpster fire it was it was, a, it was my favorite dumpster fire yeah so. I, I i don't i i don't know how he could keep in control of himself to be honest with you he, he doesn't show much evidence of oh no no there was, was no self-control. That's controlled. what made it the two hours so much fun. It was us, me poking an explosive bear. We for made a it while. seven minutes before he almost hung up. I had so much fun. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, Brian, is there anything else you wanted to ask real quick? We are we are at time, and I know Dr. White's a busy man. So is there something we really quick want to throw at the end besides we ask him the standard hook? Um, no, I think we covered most of what I had on there as questions. I mean, it was fantastic information yeah. and i knew this was going to happen I'm like i have a bunch of questions on here but i know as soon as i just roll the ball at dr white he's just gonna be like <laughs> and go <laughs> so anyway um dr white i ask every single person this at the end of our, every interview we have and that's because the church split as much as it sounds like we're apparently atheists splitting from the church or as much as we're wanting to cause a bunch of problems i always ask a simple spiritual question at the end and uh because i believe in the fundamentals of the faith and i believe standing strongly there but i also believe we can uh, there is diversity in the in the body in the kingdom of God, there is diversity of thought that shouldn't cause us to divide and hate each other. So I always ask every single one of our guests, how do you believe that your ministry can help unite such a divided body? Well, I wouldn't say, um, you know, the, the program we've done since the 1980s is called the dividing line. And so, uh, but that dividing line has always been based upon the nature of inspired scripture and whether God has in fact spoken or whether he is not. And so the only unity that I am seeking to provide is amongst all those who would indeed believe that God has spoken as Jesus plainly taught that, that he has. And that means that, that we do uh, split as Machen said was absolutely necessary from those who will no longer confess that God has in fact spoken. And so as I see the liberal, and I don't even like to use the term liberal anymore because that has too many positive connotations, the, the leftist uh, movement that fundamentally ends up denying the core essentials of the faith no, I'm, I, you can't have any unity there. There's, there's, no, there's nothing left upon which to stand. Um, but at the same time, while drawing very clear lines there of necessity, because the very message of Christianity is, is core and central at that point, at the same time, I think my maintaining friendships with and working relationships with um, individuals as divergent as... Michael Brown and Doug Wilson have demonstrated a certain level of Catholicity with a small C uh, <laughs> on my part that 
um, we are able to debate each other. Um, I, I've obviously debated Michael and I've um, debated Doug more often than anybody else actually and could be doing more debates hopefully in, in March up in Moscow with him. And yet I learn from both of these men, uh, Michael's materials on, on messianic prophecies and things like that. No one has written anything more in depth and better than he has. Um, uh, Pastor Wilson, I learn a tremendous amount from him as well. And hopefully iron sharpens iron with him when we have dialogues. So uh, I, I think there, I think Christian maturity leads us to a clear understanding of what defines the faith and doesn't stop us from having debates about the other issues. Um, I love my Presbyterian brothers, uh, but I'm not going to start baptizing babies. And I'm also not going to not preach on baptism as I am in Apologia Church right now doing an entire series. I've um, thoroughly enjoyed it, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm not going to stop doing that out of fear that then they're not going to want to have me around. There might be some that that's the case with. I, I There's nothing I can do about that. Um, but I'm going to be consistent and respectful and ask the Lord to, if, if you can live with me, I'll try to live with you. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and given the wide variety of subjects that I do address, it's, um, it's a challenge. No choice about it. Oh, absolutely. And that's kind of, I mean, our, we're not, you know, quite to the, as high of a scholarship level, we try to bring things to a certain, I don't know, mid range, I suppose. And with us, that's kind of our thing where it's like, look, I, you know, we, we deal with some divisive topics. They get dicey, but I, like you said, if I'm willing to live with you and work with you, then if you're willing to do that with me, we're good. Uh, and so I think that's actually what stuck out to me about your ministry when I first started, because when I first started breaking away from the IFB, clearly your book was the, and your work was the first thing that popped up. So therefore I was like, who's this guy? Uh, he's not Sam Gipp. What is this? Uh, and so that I, thankfully, <laughs> so I jumped into everything and uh, that's how I got introduced to all these other theological views and people and certain things like that holds up, that holds up, that doesn't hold up. And it was all because you are willing to do that. And I have appreciated that about you. You have, there is a dividing line. The dividing line is scriptural, objective, God-given truth. And then the other things, there are some things where we're trying to interpret and flex with scripture. And that's okay. As long as we understand that God has spoken, God breathed and we are, it is through faith alone in Christ alone. So I appreciate that. So anyhow, um, real quick, is there any resources that you would give anyone who is struggling with the King James onlyism? Obviously your book, the King James only controversy must recommend, highly recommended, have it right here. My highlights and my writings and everything else. Uh, is there anything else you'd recommend for people who are just now looking into this? It's funny that you actually have the second edition there. That's not even the first edition. So it's it's been around so long that uh, uh, <laughs> it is it is. In fact, uh, background story here: I typeset the first edition. Oh, wow. Um, uh, Bethany House could not do <laughs> Greek and Hebrew in uh, in the mid 1990s, and so they bought me a 1,000 DPI laser printer. And I typeset that entire book myself. So when there were corrections and stuff, I did all that work. Uh, wow. So four months of writing, but then 
I had to do all the corrections and then reprint it and then ship it back to them. And then they'd ship it out to people and then other stuff would come in and I have to do reprintings. And yeah. Uh, so uh, thankfully in the, I don't know, 15 years after that, before we did the next edition, uh, they got the ability to use Unicode and, uh, and they, <laughs> they did the, the second edition as far as typesetting. I didn't have to do that, but that was a labor of love. Uh, that, that took a, that took a lot of, took a lot of work. Um, but obviously we've done uh, at least a few debates on this particular subject. Uh, one I did in London that a lot, a lot of folks have found to be rather useful on the Revelation TV uh, show there. Um, but the, the most important thing is just simply knowing the background and history of the Bible uh, is so very, very necessary these days. Uh, I think it's the most important thing. So. So my presentation is available all over YouTube um, on the reliability of the New Testament text. I think that's even more foundational to understand the method that God used to preserve a positive presentation. It's not focused on King James onlyism at all. And um, so I would really recommend that people get grounded in that because that's really where the focus of the attack is for most people mm -hmm. uh, in our culture is, is on that very issue. Do we know what the apostles originally wrote? And the answer to that is most definitely yes. Absolutely. So, well, that's awesome. And I really appreciate that. It's actually that London debate that broke uh, Andrew. Oh, really? Because uh, yeah, he has a power. He pulls up an image of two words that with a slight difference in the middle of that debate. And then my buddy, Andrew, he's sitting there. He goes, what? But that's so close. And I'm like, I, that's exactly the point. Because he thought I was going too liberal when I rejected my King James onlyism. It was fun. <laughs> so anyway, okay. Well, Dr. White, I really appreciate, appreciate you coming onto the program. And I really appreciate you having this conversation. I do hope it's a blessing. For those of you who have not, of course, go check out Dr. James White's work. Go check out Alpha and Omega Ministries. I'm sure it'll be a blessing as it has been to me. Uh, and if you've heard of us, but not Dr. James White, I don't know what you're doing with your life, <laughs> but you need to switch to better quality content. So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time on the church split. Thank you and God bless.